we get to continue our study in the book of Amos tonight. And we're going to begin in chapter 9, or excuse me, in chapter 7. We'll do 7, 8, and 9 tonight. The tail end of the book of Amos is unique to the book. Um, For the most part, what we're going to cover tonight falls into the category of visions. And so what we've seen in Amos so far uh, are oracles. They're words that are given to Amos that he is to speak to his audience, the northern tribes of Israel. But we also have in the prophets visions, which are exactly what they sound like, things that God shows the prophets and are written down. Um, of course, we think of the visions that Daniel has um, of, the, of the four beasts waging war over the earth or um, the, the visions that are extensive in Zechariah uh, or the vision of the new temple in Ezekiel. Um, for Amos, all of the visions are kind of lumped together at the end of the book. There are five of them, and we'll start with the first one beginning here in chapter 7, verse 1. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowing. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O oh Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. And the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. And so the first vision he has here is of the threat of a plague of locusts. As we saw in the last minor prophet, the book of Joel, this was a significant problem in the ancient world, as it still is on some occasions in the Near East. Um, uh, And so he sees this vision, and notice uh, it happens, it says here, during the latter growth, when it was just beginning to sprout, Uh, after the king's mowings, which is basically a way to say to an agrarian society at the worst possible occasion, okay? This is the time when the locusts would be doing the most damage uh, and causing the most problem primarily because this, uh, this is right prior to the provision that farmers would make for themselves, okay? In other words, this is how you have living farmers for next year's crop and the crop after that. This is a terrible interruption, not just in the economy of Israel, but in the backbone of its bread supply, of its grain supply. And so he sees this vision, this threat of locusts. Um, But notice here, this is a private viewing. It's almost as if he's given an insight in what God is planning and what is to come. And so he speaks in verse 2, when they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. Now remember, Amos's background is agricultural. He is both a sheep herder and he works somehow with fig trees and grafting as we will see. So he knows the significance of this vision and he recognizes it will be catastrophic. And his first reaction is to ask God not to fulfill what he has seen, to intercede for Israel. Now, Amos is a prophet, and he is, as we've talked about, the first of the written prophets. He begins his career earlier than even Isaiah. 
Um, but we have a tendency to think of prophets as the ones who speak for God or represent God to the people, and the priests as the one who represent the people to God. Okay? Which, as far as it goes, is a pretty handy way to think about it. A priest's role is mediatorial. When they offer sacrifices, like it says in the book of Hebrews, they not only do so for themselves, but for the nation. Okay? And what phrase do we always associate with the prophets? Thus says the Lord, right? They speak for the Lord. That's what prophecy is. However, both of them are an oversimplification. For example, with the priests, the priests were the primary teachers of Israel. They were the ones who were to know and to communicate the law to Israel to instruct them generation after generation so that they would know and keep the covenant. They had a role not just to represent the people to God, but also represent God to the people. In the same way, take the Aaronic blessing of Numbers chapter 6, where after Aaron would offer the, fee, or offer the sacrifices, he would come out and he would speak over the people, the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you, right? He would speak God's blessing with authority over the people as a proper response to a well-received sacrifice, okay? In the same way, the prophets have a regular and consistent component of representing the people of Israel before God, of being intercessory, in fact, we see this going all the way back to Moses. Think of how many occasions God opens up, uh, opens up his plans to Moses and says, you are leading a stubborn and rebellious people. I'm going to wipe them out and I will replace them with your own descendants. And Moses intercedes. Or remember when Moses is... Uh, is accosted in his authority, called out and basically a group of people says, Moses, you're no different than us. We want to be leaders. And his reaction is not to defend himself, but to fall on his knees in prayer for those uh, before him. He was an interceder. Samuel is the same way. In fact, we tend to think of Samuel as the first formal prophet of the nation of Israel, right? Moses was very much a prophet. There's no getting around that. But in terms of the prophets like Elijah, Elisha, Amos, uh, Isaiah, we generally think of Samuel as being the first one. He's a transitional character in the Old Testament. He's the last of the judges, and he's the first of the prophets, these people who speak to the kings, right, as the prophets often do. But Samuel recognizes his role as an intercessory one, and so when he steps down from being judge of Israel, he tells the people, May guilt be upon me if I don't continue to pray for you. Okay. And I think this is an important thing to realize because appropriately we often recognize that we as Christians also have a prophetic calling. In other words, we have a message from God to give to the world. It is a, it is a message, as the prophets always are, of judgment and of salvation. Okay? And we're called to proclaim that in fact, when we get to the New Testament, we find people who function as prophets, consider Agabus in Acts chapter 11, or the four virgin daughters of Philip, one of the men appointed in Acts chapter 6, all who are known as prophesying. The New Testament talks regularly about the gifts of prophecy. In fact, the visions that we're seeing here are also referenced in the New Testament. 
Quoting from the book of Joel, Peter speaks of the coming of the Holy Spirit in the new covenant available in Jesus Christ, and he says, your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. But we also find in our hearts and in our midst a proclivity to the role of the prophet. The wrath and fury, the anger, the thus saith the Lord, the condemnation and judgment. And it's important for us to recognize that the heart of a prophet is not just anger and wrath, but is intercessory. In fact, I would suggest that you cannot represent God well unless you play the part of an intercessor. That's why the interceding works. This is exactly what God is after in Amos. This is the reaction that God is looking for. In fact, there's a haunting passage in the book of Ezekiel where God is talking about impending judgment coming on the southern kingdom of Judah, and he says, I looked far and wide for anyone to intercede and to stand in the gap, but I found no one. His heart is a heart of mercy. His character is one of patience. Okay? And so if we or someone else claim to represent God and are missing that orientation towards mercy, missing that heart of Jesus who, while he hangs on the cross, prays, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do, right? Misses that same heart that we see repeated in Stephen, the first martyr of the church. It's appropriate for us to question if they really do truly speak for God. Amos here carries this message, but he doesn't carry it indifferently. He doesn't carry it gleefully. He carries it with a burden for his people, and that's reflected here. And so he stands in the gap, he intercedes, and he he basically calls for two things. Forgive your people, and then don't let this happen because they won't survive it. It will destroy them. And notice how God responds, verse 3. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. Now, that's super interesting, isn't it? Because we're in prophetic literature, and so God doesn't say, this is what I'm thinking about doing. He just shows him this vision. And it's almost like Amos gets a vote, right? He intercedes, God relents, it doesn't happen. This is one of the significant mysteries of the tension between prayer and God's sovereignty. Right? It's a little bit hard to reconcile. I, I think we can say with confidence what I said earlier, that God's heart is a heart of mercy. And so when Amos intercedes here, he intercedes according to the will of God. But it doesn't change the fact that here, Amos does stand in the gap and it changes the outcome. And I don't think that Amos is going through the motions with God. Nor do I think God is going through the motions with Amos. And so it should stir us to follow the advice of the New Testament that regularly proclaims that we as Christians should also be interceders. Those who pray on the behalf of our nations and our non-Christian friends and the church itself. And so he sees this vision, the threat of locusts. He cries out for forgiveness. And God says, I'm not going to do it. And then verse 4, notice we have a mirror vision. The format is exactly the same. The language is exactly the same. The content is different. But it's clearly 
a, a, a similar experience. Verse 4, this is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Okay, and so here what he sees is fire, and the fire is so strong that it swallows up the great deep. So think of like the Mediterranean Sea. Think of like uh, you know, all of the water of Israel, the fire is so hot it just instantly evaporates and it's gone. This is a consuming fire. It's destruction, right? And again, he speaks up, verse 5, Then I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. And the Lord relented concerning, This also shall not be, said the Lord God. Verse 7, This is what he showed me. Okay, see the format begins Again, the same, but it's going to shift a little bit here. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. And then the Lord said, okay. So notice this one starts the same way. What did he see? And then here, uniquely, he's asked, what are you looking at, Amos? What do you see? We see the same thing in Zechariah, okay. Um, and we'll see it again in another one of the visions here in Amos. And what he sees is uh, a hand and a plumb line and a wall. Okay, A plumb line is just, uh, you know, the modern equivalent. I'm pretty sure the ancient one was similar, but it's a weighted piece of string that allows you to measure how level, vertically, a wall is. Okay. And so if you have a weighted piece of string because of the way gravity works, that string will, will point perfectly, straightly, perpendicularly down at the ground. So if you put it next to a wall and the wall is leaning to one way or the other, you'll see the widening gap between the string and know that the wall is not straight. Okay? And so what he sees here is an assessment. Right? What he sees here is a measurement. And then God speaks. Then the Lord said, Behold, I'm setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Okay. So I want, I want us to read this in two different ways, these verses in verse 8 and 9. First, we need to read it in the pattern we've been seeing. Locus, it will not happen. Fire, it will not happen. But that does not mean that judgment won't come. Okay. The second thing I want us to think about is the relationship between the language of 8 and 9 and the imagery of a plumb line. Right? And so he sees this vision and he says, this is what I'm going to do. He says, I'm about to set a plumb line in the midst of my people. Okay. In other words, there's going to be a standardized test for righteousness and the grades are going to be published. That's the idea here, is although God did relent of the other disasters, he is still going to bring justice. He is still expecting righteousness and repentance from Israel, and the time is coming when he's going to make, if you will, the judgment call. Okay. That's the idea here, and God, being all-knowing here, paints the picture of what will come, what will come as consequence of that, and notice here, this isn't so much about walls that are leaning, you know, degrees to the left or right. This is about a leveling. This is about a horizontal flattening. And so he says here, the high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, 
and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Okay. And so he says effectively here, as he's been saying the whole time, destruction is coming on the northern tribes and the kingdom, if you will, of Jeroboam II. Then we get something unique in these vision passages of chapters 7 through 9. In fact, it's unique to the book of Amos. We get narrative. We get historical story. We get the only biographical component of the entire book of Amos. What that means is, not only do we learn a little bit about Amos, that's not really a big deal, but we also learn about the reaction to Amos' words. If you go back and you read Jeremiah, you'll see constantly how people respond to his message. He's thrown in prison. He's mocked. He's criticized. He's threatened. With Amos, we haven't had any of that. We've just had a record of individual oracles, of the words of Amos. This is the first place where we kind of get to see how he was responded to. Why is it here? Most likely because it's directly connected to the vision that preceded it. I want you to remember, to keep in mind here, he says he's going to rise against the house of Jeroboam with a sword. With that being read, verse 10, then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel. Notice they're not a priest of Bethel, but the priest of Bethel. Okay, he's the high priest, if you will. He's the chief priest. But remember, this is not a Levitical priest. This is not like Aaron was, the high priest of Israel. This is a set-up alternate form of worship in an alternate place with an alternate priesthood, which, by the way, if you go back and read in 1 Kings, was for the highest bidder. You want to be the priest of Israel? You just buy your way in. Okay? But Amaziah is the guy. Bethel is his place. He is responsible for it. So then, after this vision that we get of Amos has been published, after these words are heard, hey, did you hear about Amos? He's saying that God is going to destroy the northern tribes and the kingdom of Jeroboam with it, right? As that word's getting around, Amaziah takes action. He sent to Jeroboam, the king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. So how does Amaziah interpret this? He interprets it as a political conspiracy, right? A threat against the throne. Okay. And so he's trying to draw attention to the fact that Amos, who remember is an outsider, he's from Judah, he's from the southern tribes, has been touring around Israel prophesying the end of the current king of Israel. Now, if you've read any of the Old Testament, you know that kings and prophets didn't always get along, and sometimes the greatest threat to the lives of the prophets are the kings themselves. And so Amaziah is trying to stir this up, and then he quotes, he says in verse 11, For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. Okay. Now, is that what Amos said? It's pretty close. He gets all the nouns right. But notice the difference here. Back in verse 9, he says, he says, The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate. The sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Rise against the house with the sword means war. Jeroboam shall die by the sword means death. Right? It's not the same thing. Conveniently here, Amaziah personalizes the message as if, again, it's a conspiratorial thought, uh, 
plot against the king himself. Okay. And then notice he talks about the exile here, and Amos is full of this warning that Israel's going to be frog-marched out of their nation and resettled in Assyria. But there's something we saw in the vision that's not mentioned here, and it gets to the heart of the matter for Amaziah. It shows us his motives. Notice again verse 9. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. What is that? That's the worship of the northern tribes, right? That's Amaziah's territory. That's his livelihood. That's his job. That's why he's really threatened here, is because Amos doesn't just stand against Israel. He stands against Israel specifically because of the worship that Amaziah leads. Verse 12, Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there. Now, notice what's missing here. Jeroboam never responds to Amaziah reaching out. And we're not told why. Maybe he doesn't care. Maybe he has a a concept that, look, I don't like what Amos is saying, but standing against a prophet is always a dangerous proposition, so it's better to just ignore him. But either way, again, we see Amaziah's real heart. If he can't get Jeroboam's help, he's going to try and do it anyways. It reminds me in the New Testament when Jesus is touring around Galilee and the religious leaders come here, come to him and they say, Herod is seeking your life, so you should run away. But we have no record of Herod having any interest in putting Jesus to death during that period. In fact, if you look at the story of John the Baptist, he was really intrigued by John the Baptist-type characters. But the Pharisees are just using the threat of danger to try and deal with Jesus. In the same way, Amaziah does the same thing, and he criticizes him here in a couple of different ways. He says, first, seer, go flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there. He says, get off my turf. This is not your home. If you have a message from the Lord, take it to your own people. What does that have to do with us? Okay. In verse 13, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is the temple of the kingdom. Okay. Second, he says, what you're doing is political in nature. Okay. And then notice, he identifies him here as a seer or a prophet. And that's where Amos responds to in verse 14. Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now this is kind of confusing, and it's even a little bit more confusing in the Hebrew, because basically he says here, I am not a prophet nor a prophet's son. And then he says, but the Lord took me from following and gave me a message to go prophesy. And so it sounds like he's saying, hey, don't, don't mistake me as a prophet here at first. It sounds like, and, and we've seen this before, right? Somebody abdicating authority and saying, well, I was only expressing my opinion. Nothing political going on. But that's not the point here. Here's what we would misunderstand if we didn't stop and think about it, if we didn't pay attention to the broader context of the story the Bible tells. When Amaziah identifies Amos as a prophet and criticizes him for being outside of his territory, he believes that Amos is in the payroll of the king of Judah, as many prophets were. 
okay? Keeping prophets around was a practice not just in Israel, who believed in a God who spoke, but in all the nations. It didn't matter if they called them soothsayers, right? But why is Daniel so attractive to the king of Babylon? Because he seems to have a direct line with the divine realm, right? And so if you look... um, you know, when Elijah goes to Mount Carmel to stand against the prophets of Baal, they're all on Jezebel's payroll, right? 400 of them work for Ahab and Jezebel. And we see this consistently. In fact, there's an occasion where the king of Judah comes down and he's in Israel and he's in the courtyard and they're about to go to war to deal with a shared enemy. And all these prophets are applauding and being like, it's just victory everywhere. And the king of Judah goes, is there anyone else we can talk to? Could we get a second opinion? You pay all of these guys. How do you know you're not telling you what you want to hear? And he says, well, there is this one guy, Elijah, but he never says anything nice. And he goes, we need to talk to him, right? The king of Judah gets it. But in Israel, prophets were for hire. And so here he basically says, you are outside your jurisdiction. Go back to Judah and prophesy to that king. You have nothing to do with this territory. And that's where Amos steps in and offers a correction. And he basically says, I'm self-employed, thank you very much. I don't do this for a living. I'm not here because it's good money. Unlike you, Amaziah, who bought your position, I, I just tend sheep. I'm a tender of sycamore figs, he says. He says, but... The Lord took me from following the flock. And the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. He says, my boss isn't the king. My boss is the king of kings. I didn't come because I wanted to be a prophet. I was sent. In fact, he uses very poignant language here. He says, the Lord took me from following the flock. That's the phrase that's used to talk of David's kingship. Right? David was just some guy out taking care of sheep. And God said, I want him. And Amos says, it was the same with me. I didn't choose this path. I didn't seek it out. I wasn't after it, okay? But also, as he points this out, what is he saying? He's saying, so if you have a problem with me, you have a problem with the God who sent me. And again, this is language we see regularly in Jesus. He says to his disciples, he who receives you, receives me. And he who receives me, receives him who sent me. Amos is a true prophet. And so notice what he says next, verse 16. Now, therefore, since I am a prophet who has been sent with a message, since I am not on any man's payroll, but God has called me to prophesy, he goes, therefore, I have a delivery for you, Amaziah. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord. Your wife shall be called a prostitute in the city, and your son and your daughters shall fall by the sword, and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from his land. Okay. Now, two things here. One, notice this is clearly personal. Although he finishes with saying, and it is going to happen just as I said, He starts by focusing on how it's going to impact Amaziah and his family in particular. 
But at the same time, that doesn't necessarily mean that this is a new or additional curse on Amaziah's household. He is clearly part of the problem. He is the religious leader of his day. Okay? He's one of the primary people who could make a difference and have not. He's one of the primary people who needs to repent. And so judgment is coming and it's going to affect his household. But it's important that we read this in the right way because when he says your wife shall be a prostitute in the city, that to me sounds like a Monty Python insult, right? He's not just saying something mean here. He's recognizing how how, um, defeat in war goes, okay? It creates slavery and sexual slavery. It breaks up households. It kills fathers and mothers. And he basically says, you're not going to escape these things. Okay. Chapter 8. This is what the Lord God showed me. Sound familiar? Right? We had two matching visions. Right? I saw locusts. I saw fire. And I said, forgive them, Lord. Both times. And then I saw and the Lord asked me, what is it that you see? These two visions are connected. Okay, and so we had that word of explanation, the story that happens. Now we're back into the visions. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. And the Lord said to me, okay, the end has come upon my people Israel. Okay, now, first off, for us, puns are bad jokes. For the Hebrew prophets, they're a way of making a point, okay? And the Hebrew word for summer fruit and the Hebrew word for end are homonyms. They're spelled different, they sound the same, okay? And so there is a play on words here to make a point. A basket of summer fruit is not threatening like locusts or fire, right? The point has to do with one, the play on word, and then two, what do you say about a basket of summer fruit? What is unique about that fruit versus when it hangs on the tree? It's ripe. And that's the second idea here. So the plumb line idea was, I'm going to take the measurement and judgment is coming. The idea here is that Israel is ripe for judgment. The time is now. Okay. He says uh, here, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies. They are thrown everywhere. Silence. Okay. Hear this, you who trample on the needy. Okay, so verses 2 and 3 there, that's a vision, a very graphic, dramatic vision of what it's going to be like. He's like, the worship centers won't be full of people praising God anymore, but mourners Bodies will be strewn everywhere, and eventually, nothing, right? Because Israel will be evacuated. But starting in verse 4, he starts to again lay out the accusations, the crimes that lead to the punishment. Okay? And I want you to notice what's going on here. He uses this vision of summer fruit. So how do you know when an avocado is ripe? Squeeze it, right? How do you know if a cantaloupe is ripe? By its smell. How do you know if a nation is ripe for judgment? Here we get a picture. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale? 
How do you know when a nation is ripe for judgment? By how they treat the most vulnerable. Okay. By how they handle the poor. By how they take care of or not take care of or even take advantage of those who cannot protect themselves. And the prophets are adamant and consistent on this point. Okay. But there is, again, as we've seen throughout Amos, a religious element. And so these are not wealthy atheists who believe, you know, in, in uh, cultural Darwinianism, that the strongest have a right to all the spoils, and if you're, you know, if you're starving, it's because you're weak and you don't deserve to live. That's not who these are. These guys are sitting in church, right? And so notice what it says there. He says, saying to themselves, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? Okay, the new moon is a religious holiday. It's a Sabbath. And they're looking at their watches and going, man, I wish this day was over because I got to get back to work. I want to make more money. And then again, and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make an ephah small and the shekel great. And so the second thing we see here is not only are they dreaming on Monday, of Monday on Sunday, but they're also dreaming of new ways to take advantage of people. And so here, how can we make the ephah small and the shekel great? In other words, the ephah is the measurement of wheat. Okay, and so the way you would measure that in those days would be on a scale. So what if we just use the wrong stones? And we say they're five-pound stones, but they're really 4.5. Okay. And then it says, and make the shekel great. In those days, money was actually measured by weight. Okay. It wasn't pressed like our money is today. And so a bigger shekel balanced against a smaller weight is double the stealing. And so here they are sitting in church, and instead of listening to the sermon or while maybe they're mindlessly singing along in the songs, they're plotting ways to take advantage of people. That's the criticism here in verse 5. Continuing here in verse 6, and deal deceitfully with false balances, right? Weights and measures that aren't equal. He says that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. Okay. Buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. That's been a repeated refrain in Amos. But the last one is new. Selling the chaff of the wheat. Okay. The chaff is like the wrapper of grain. Um, it's like every once in a while when you're eating something and you get the, the papery part of like popcorn stuck in your mouth. That's what chaff is. Okay. But it's as if they get to the bottom of the grain barrel here and it's just the papery part and they just scoop it up and sell it just like the grain. Okay. They're not even selling real food now just to make more profit. Okay. Verse 7, the Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob. Now that's a really striking statement. Okay. There are occasions where God swears in the Old Testament, and this isn't swearing as in cursing, this is taking an oath. Right? And so, I solemnly swear on my mother's grave is this type of swearing. And oftentimes, when God wants to make something really queer, clear, he swears on his own name. Because what else? What is more stable and big that he could swear on? But here he swears by the pride of Jacob. Okay? The pride of Jacob is not a stable thing. In fact, we have to ask ourselves what he's talking about here. And we encountered, actually, the pride of Jacob um, last week as we were looking in chapters uh, four, five, and six, and I'll leave it for homework for you to go and find it. 
Um, but it's possible in that context that the pride of Jacob is the temple in Bethel, okay? is this worship center. That it's the pride of Jacob because all eyes are on it. This is the centerpiece of our religion and therefore the centerpiece of our nature. And he goes, well, I swear according to your own temple. And we'll see that idea of, of swearing about Bethel come back. What does he say? The Lord has sworn according to the pride of Jacob, verse 7, Surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account, and everyone mourn who dwells in it, and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? The society that grew up around the Nile and the Nile Delta um, doesn't get a lot of rain. It's watered instead by the Nile and specifically by the flooding of the Nile. And so smart, early Egyptian cultures realized that they could irrigate extensive fields that when the water would flood, the flood would carry the water into the fields and then it would recede. But it's also tremendously destructive, okay? It's just like every time we get a hurricane and the houses that are right along the beach are suddenly threatened, okay? It's a relatively dangerous, big happening, okay? It doesn't just add a foot or two, you know, on a... Uh, over a couple of months, it swells greatly and then shrinks, okay? But the picture here is of the whole land rising and falling like the Nile, okay? It's like a rolling earthquake. In fact, this seems to be a constant metaphor for Amos, the earthquake. We'll see it one more time tonight, okay? And I would suggest to you that that has to do with how significant it is to his audience. Remember what it said all the way back in chapter 1? It says here, verse, two of cha- or verse 1 of chapter 1, the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Okay? So two years into Amos's ministry, there is a earthquake. And so you know how we say, never, never speak of rope in a hangman's house, right? In the same way here, Have you ever been on edge about natural disaster words that you've actually experienced? My wife is this way. She grew up in Southern California. Earthquakes terrify her. And and small tremors that we get here recall big earthquakes that she survived as a kid and they just put her on edge. That seems to be why Amos is so fond of this imagery. And so he says, he says, what God's going to do is if the land is rolling just like it did the day the earthquake struck. Okay. Verse 9, and on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun to go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. And so he speaks here of an eclipse, right? And interestingly enough, in the decade and a half that Amos served, there were two eclipses that would have been visible okay, during, uh, during his ministry. Twice there were eclipses. So again, he's drawing from imagery they would understand. Okay. Verse 10, turn your feasts into mourning, your songs into lamentation, sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. And why does it emphasize the only son there? Because of inheritance because of legacy, right? For Israel, all their promises were future tense. And so enjoying the blessing of God required marriage and children, and especially a firstborn son, the prime inheritor. 
And so the death of a firstborn son was the death of your legacy. It was the end of your future. Okay, so very dark days that he's using to um, illustrate here. Verse 11, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing of the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east, and they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Now, famine is one of the judgments that is warned about in Deuteronomy for forsaking the covenant. In fact, Amos mentions that these have happened in the past, and it made no difference to his audience. They just brushed it off and didn't think, huh, maybe we need to repent. But here he says it's going to be a different type of famine. It's going to be a famine of the word of the Lord. And then notice again in verse 12, these people who are wandering, they're looking for it and can't find it. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Now the idea here is possibly of God going dark, silent, right? I'm just going to stop sending prophets. But in history, that's not actually what happens. And by the time Israel is wiped out and sent to Assyria, their prophets still in gear, still practicing. By the time it happens to Judah and Babylon, Jeremiah is taken captive as one of the Babylonians. Ezekiel prophesies from Babylon, already being deported before Jerusalem's destruction. So what is this period then? Some like to refer to what we call the silent years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because when Israel does come back into the land, the prophets that we have then, they are kind of of a different class. Okay? Think, of, think of Ezra and Nehemiah. They are more about instructing people in what has been said before. Even Daniel, right? He is heavily involved in the book of Jeremiah. And then once, once we get past the book of Malachi, we finish our Old Testament... We don't find God speaking or sending prophets or anything for almost 400 years. Okay. The book of Maccabees, the Maccabean revolt that leads us to Hanukkah, um, you know, the, uh, the conquering of the world by Rome, all of that stuff happens in that period. But there are no prophets. There are no scriptures. And that silence is broken when an angel appears to a priest named Zechariah and says, you're going to have a son and he's going to be important. And that's John the Baptist. But I think more likely, neither of those is what's referenced here. It's not about God not speaking. It's about them being so out of tune that they don't even know how to hear him anymore. Okay. In fact, there's an occasion, not here in Israel, but after Israel's destruction when Judah walks down the same road, where during the days of a young king named Josiah, who's just a kid, while he's sitting on the throne, a uh, a um, officer of his court is digging around in a semi-defunct, mostly used for pagan worship temple, and he finds a copy of the law of the Old Testament, probably of the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And he brings it to the king, and they read it, and they go, oh, no. And they just realize why everything is the way it is. And so Josiah, with the help of this priest, brings about a great reform in Israel. But think of how bad things had to be that they didn't even know there was a covenant. 
They didn't even know there was an Old Testament that God had spoken. They didn't even know any of that, and they forgot where to look until somebody just stumbled across a copy. That seems to be the idea here. And this is just as significant and just as dangerous. In fact, it says in the book of Deuteronomy that man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Our relationship with God is vital. And so to be a, uh, a nation or a culture or an age that has grown deaf to his word is a horrible, horrible fate. Okay. But again, it's not because God isn't speaking or hasn't spoken or hasn't sent his messengers. But like Romans chapter 1, we can reject the truth, suppressing it unrighteousness, and turn to falsehoods, and God gives us over to them. And we believe a lie, proclaiming ourselves to be wise, and we cannot hear the truth any longer. Verse 13, In that day, lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. Why does it mention them, the virgins and the young men? Because they're the healthiest and strongest, right? If it was the old men or the children, they're the ones who are most vulnerable to a famine. But right at the center are these strong people who can wait it out But even those ones, he says, will faint for thirst. He says, those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. Remember how this passage started with God swearing by the pride of Jacob? And he says, and all of you who have been swearing by the pride of Jacob, you're the ones I'm talking to. You're the ones who have forsaken me. Because the God of Dan... And the God behind the way of Beersheba, remember how I told you Beersheba was a pilgrimage destination way south of Jerusalem? Here, the way of Beersheba is just like when we talk about the Camino, the pilgrimage road that goes from France to Spain. That's just the Spanish word for way, right? Um, and so he recognizes here that this, this religion is the reason why they're deaf, because they're listening here, right? Chapter 9. Again, I saw, okay, the last vision here. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. Which altar? Based on the context of everything we've read tonight, it's the altar at Bethel, right? It's the centerpiece of Bethel's worship. It's the centerpiece of Israel's sin and guilt. And so he has a vision here, and he sees the Lord standing beside the altar. And he said, Strike the capitals until the threshold shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left to them, I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. I've made the case throughout this book that Amos's primary critique of the people of Israel is religious in nature. It's religion that manifests itself in injustice But there's a focal point on their religion, how false and hypocritical it is, uh, how how they use it and justify it. And so appropriately here, when the judgment comes, where does it begin? It begins at the temple. In fact, this idea of striking the capitals until the threshold shake, that's earthquake imagery again, right? And so I want you to read what we're reading right here as if Bethel is the epicenter of God's judgment. 
But I want you to notice the next question we ask when we ask where an epicenter is, is how big of a scale, right? How high on the Richter scale, and that tells us how far it reaches from the epicenter. And so, like all the time, we hear about earthquakes that happen in the area, but the epicenter's never right here, you know? There was that one in 2002 or 2003 where it was just south of Olympia, right? And I felt that one in Yakima, okay? But me feeling it was because I was on a second story and the only thing I noticed was the blinds swinging back and forth as the building swayed, okay? But my aunt, who was in Olympia, her TV fell over, right? Her furniture shook, okay? The next question then becomes, all right, if it starts there, how far is it going to reach? Look at verse 2. If they dig into Sheol, from there my hand shall take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, which is a mountain, from there I will search them out and take them. If they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. Okay? Clearly here, inescapability is the point. There is no distance safe enough from Bethel because God's judgment is going to be so sure. In fact, notice verse 4, if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them, and I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. Okay. And so the judgment is coming, and it's going to start at Bethel, but it's going to affect and impact the whole ten northern tribes who are all going to be deported because of their sins. Verse 5, the Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rise like the Nile and sink again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heaven and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name. Again, Amos here seems to borrow a famous hymn, okay? This piece doesn't fit, just like the last time we saw. It's praising God, and the focus here of this hymn is on the God who will judge the nations, right? Do you see that? It's the God who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, okay? Here is a song, apparently, they sung at Bethel, part of their worship program, praising God because he was sovereign over the whole world and would do justice. And he says, that's the God I'm talking about and you're going to be on the receiving end. Earlier, we read that the people of, in Amos' day believed that the day of the Lord was going to be a day of rejoicing because it meant victory for them. And he said, no, it's a day of mourning and darkness and death, right? Because although they believe that God is on their side, the Lord, as it says here, is his name, they're not on God's side. They're against the poor. They're uh, for injustice which God is against. They have worshipped in ways that are not honoring to him. Then notice verse 7, Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? He says, Those foreign nations that you believe judgment is coming on? He says, Don't you see you're in the same category? In fact, he pushes it further. He says, Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt? And everybody would go, Yeah, the Exodus. That's the whole point. That's what makes us your people. But look, he continues, and the Philistines from Kaftor, and the Syrians from Kerr. What is he saying? He's like, yeah, the Exodus was unique, but I move all the nations. All the land they have, I gave them. Okay. 
He says, Behold, the eyes of the Lord, verse 8, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. Okay. Now that's new information. So far, it's been no escape, even captivity. The sword will come after you. And he says, but there will be a remnant. There will be a future. I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. Now, is that a separation between the righteous and the wicked? Not technically. It's not as if God here is separated and said, okay, you guys are bad and you guys are good, so you'll survive. Right? That was the mistake that the people in Ezekiel's day made. Because here they were still in Jerusalem while everyone else had been deported and they went, well, I guess we're the good guys because God dealt with all the bad guys. And Ezekiel says, no, these ones have already repented. You still haven't. And so in the same way here, Amos speaks of something new that God's going to do. There will be righteous people because there will be repentance. And therefore there will be a future. Verse 9, for behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. Okay. So the idea here is of a sieve, right? And it's got sand and it's got pebbles in it and the sand is going to fall through. Right? I always think of that scene in Star Wars where Princess Leia says to Darth Vader, the rebel alliance is like the sand and the tighter you grip your hand, the more we slip through your fingers. That's how a sieve is supposed to work. It lets the sand slip through. In other words here, his, his judgment is not going to be complete. It will deal with the sand, but it will leave behind the pebbles. All the sinners, he says, of my people shall die by their sword, who say disaster shall not overtake us or meet us. And let me just remind you that that phrase is not something we generally say. We don't jump up on a table and say, I am an invincible, right? The idea here is the rejection of what God has said. God sends his prophet saying, thus says the Lord, disaster is coming, and the people say, no, it's not. Right? That's what the problem is. And then notice verse 11. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins. Again, new information. There's judgment coming. The judgment is inescapable, but it is not the end. After that, there is hope. After that, notice here, he doesn't even say, in that day, you will repent, and then I'll set things right. He says, in that day, I'm going to do something new. Okay? The hope we get here is a new work of God, and he says he's going to raise up the booth of David that is fallen. Okay? The booth of David, or the tent of David here, it's as if, again, earthquake imagery. It's as if it fell down. And God says, but I'm going to rebuild it. And notice here, it's connected directly to King David. It's not going to be the line of Jeroboam that's going to be restored. It's going to be the line of David. Israel's going to be united, not just the ten northern tribes and the southern tribes, but the people of Israel. He says he'll rebuild it as in the days of old, verse 12, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who were called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Okay, third surprise. First one, there will be a remnant. Second, that remnant will be restored. Third, that remnant will be bigger than just the people of Israel. 
It says here, all the nations who are called by my name. Now, interestingly, there's an occasion in the book of Acts where a debate breaks out between some of the apostles, specifically Paul and Barnabas, and some representatives in Jerusalem who have come to their church in Antioch and said to their converts, you Gentiles need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. If you're going to receive the promises of Israel, you have to become a Jew. And so they go to Jerusalem and they have this big debate and the question is, must Gentiles become Jews and keep the customs and covenant of the Jews to be the people of God? And there's a lot of people who speak up and say things, but James speaks up. And this is what he says. He says, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Sound familiar? Right? That, that's the language of Amos. And with this, the word the prophets agree just as it is written, and he quotes the passage we just read. After this, I will return and rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, he says in verse 19, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. He says, this is exactly what was supposed to happen. God's plan was always greater than Israel. And even Amos told us that there was going to be a people called by my name from the Gentile nations, and they were acceptable as the Gentile nations. Okay. Now, why is that significant? Why was it worth walking through? Primarily because I want you to remember tonight that Amos is the oldest of the written prophets. He's the first this book, in its full written uh, total, recording the oracles of Amos, shows that the beginning of the prophetic ministry of what God was going to do included a plan for the Gentiles. This is not something that was tacked on by later prophets. It was right in the beginning. But that doesn't mean it was clear or easy to understand, which is why the New Testament, especially Paul, refers to the acceptance of the Gentiles and the grafting them into the people of Israel as a mystery. And don't think Sherlock Holmes. The Greek word mystery means a secret, something that you only know if it's told to you. And so he goes on and he says, but this secret has been revealed. It has been spoken. It's now known. Okay. And so now you know the secret. You go back and you read. It's like when you get to the end of a mystery novel and you know who the killer is and then you go back and read it again. Now you see what's going on. You see everything along the way. Okay. But it's here and it's present because that was God's plan all the way back in Genesis 12. Yes, Abraham, I'm selecting you and only you. And I'm going to give you many descendants and I'm going to bless your descendants. But I am also through you going to bless all the nations of the earth. It was God's MO. It was God's planet, uh, plan. He wasn't just interested in the children of Abraham, but the children of Adam and Eve. Right? That's how far back the promise goes. And so we see that envisioned here. And then he continues, verse 13. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treaders of grape, him who sows the seed. Okay, so now we see a third vision here, a third part of the vision, and it's of a agricultural society that defies the laws of science. It's as if here the plowman is going to catch up with the guy who is sowing seed 
and he's going to be harvesting fruit before it's even sown. Okay? Now, this is clearly hyperbolic, but it's also clearly physical. It can't be spiritualized. We can't just take this and turn it into whatever spiritual blessings we want to talk about. Very clearly, the Old Testament prophets talk about a restored world. Not just a heavenly escape from the world that is, but a world that is as God designed it, fixed and renewed. Read Romans chapter 8. That's what's being envisioned here. Okay? Now, I want you to notice something. If we were to read this last chapter of Amos and say, where are we in the timeline? We know where to place the finger right now, right? Does God save a remnant? Yes. In fact, he brings them back into the land of Israel. Did they have this type of agrarian success? Have they experienced the Garden of Eden regained? No. This is still to come. He says, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. He says, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make their gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted. Out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. And so here we see not just abundance, but security, right? No more enemies will threaten them and then permanence. Forever and ever, amen, right, is how this book ends. And so it's no surprise when we turn to the book of Revelation, we find a lot of the same imagery in its tale chapters. This is where things are headed here. But the thing that's striking, if you can strip the New Testament out, if you can just sit in Amos's day, or maybe even better, in the days right after Amos's ministry when Israel is deported. So you're sitting in Assyria, everything you knew is destroyed, and you're reading the book of Amos, and you read of this future. When we look at it that way, there's a mystery to the book of Amos. And it's, how is this going to go differently? God creates Adam and Eve. Adam sins, judgment. God restores them, sets things up, implements government in Genesis 9, Tower of Babel, judgment. Right? Over and over again, we see this pattern happening. And here, we see that God brings judgment. And he promises hope, but it's a new hope. It's an undefeatable hope. It's a hope that will be a final and permanent hope. He doesn't say, for the next round, I'll get you back and then things will be okay. He says, I'm going to take you all the way back to the beginning and there will be no getting off course this time. This is the mystery starting in the book of Amos that you have to read through all the prophets to find the solution for. How is it that God can take a sinful people and turn them righteous? And the answer in the New Testament is Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy, says the New Testament. He's the center of it. He's the primary message. He's the content. He's the answer to the mystery of Amos. And as we see, that answer for it is for us, not just for the Jews. And so the people who are called by my name, that's us right here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your plan and for your prophets. We thank you for where things are headed, Lord. We know that all creation is groaning in the futility that it has been subjected in 
while it awaits our redemption as the sons of God. And we too join it in growing, or in groaning, longing for it to be complete, longing for the presence of sin and weakness and the fall and the curse and death itself to be removed. And so when we read Amos, Lord, we join his audience in saying, Amen. But we don't have to just say, may this come. We can say, may you come. Come, Lord Jesus. Finish what you started. We praise you tonight for your grace. We worship you in your goodness and your holiness. And especially, Lord, in your mercy. Because we know that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And we thank you for that gift tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.